0: I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study this morning in Colossians. Who here likes coffee? I'm a fan of coffee. I used to not be a fan of coffee. It wasn't until I got married and my wife turned me over to the dark side that I started drinking coffee. And now I'm an addict through and through. When I go to coffee shop, let's pick Starbucks, you know, because it's known. When I go to Starbucks, one of my favorite drinks is a black and white mocha. And I like it because it's like dark chocolate and white chocolate together. And, uh, but I also like it because it's got a lot of names. It's like black and white, it's a marble, penguin, tuxedo, if I'm feeling bold, I'll call it the Michael Jackson right? No groans, black and white mocha though. it's you know, but everybody's got a drink, right? Everybody goes in, and, and some people are crazy, super crazy, like I want three pumps of this, four pumps of that, this temperature. you know they they've got their but they've got their drink, and you know, maybe it's complex, maybe it's simple but it's yours. And many people often think about religion, I think, in kind of the same way. Right? They they kind of want to make their own concoction. You know, I'm going to add a few pumps of this, a few pumps of that, and I'm going to create my own kind of comfortable Christianity. Let's call it Christianity. It doesn't even have to be Christianity. A lot of it is just a lot of people just uh, have an idea that they're just going to have their own religious ideas. And as long as I'm essentially a good person, um, that that's, that's good for me. Right? But Jesus, Jesus is not a pump to be added to your life. And this is, this is the message to the Colossian churches, the church in Colossian, to Colossae. They didn't deny Christ. They simply dethroned him. In today's message, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul makes the point that we, as believers, as part of this assembly, what he calls the body of Christ, the church, we have to put Christ back in his place see the church in Colossae they as we've looked at over the past couple of weeks they were they were not the most bustling town but they were they were on a trade route right and so there was a lot of there were a lot of ideas that were flowing in and out of the city and with that there were a lot there was there was the potential at least for Corruption for wrong thinking to take place because there's there's an idea that comes in and and kind of introduces itself and it lo- seems attractive at first and you're like, oh, OK, well, I could I could kind of add that. that that makes sense. And but. This is not. The Christianity that has been laid out for us in Scripture. Uh, Christian Smith, an author. Back in 2005, he wrote a, a book called Soul Searching, and he was, he was looking at um, the spiritual beliefs and habits of teenagers. And this was 2005, right? So they're fully contributing members of society now, working supposedly full-time. Um, and, uh, but the, there, was a, there was a term that he coined that I think kind of encapsulates what I've been talking about. And it's moralistic, therapeutic deism or theism. Moralistic in the sense that um, the idea is to be good, to be nice. And therapeutic in the sense that it's about what makes me feel good. Right? As long as I'm doing good, as as long as I'm being good, as long as I feel good, I'm all Right? and deism or theism essentially being the belief that, yeah, there's a God, but that God is out there somewhere, right? He's not directly involved in my life. He doesn't necessarily demand anything of me. In fact, if anything, he's more, he, this God is more of a cosmic genie, you know, that, that When I get in trouble, I call upon God and then God comes and solves my problems and then when I'm good, he can go back to whatever it is that he does. Right? That's this idea that is so prevalent and apparently it was prevalent even in Bible times, right? Because this is why the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's saying, hey, look, Jesus Christ is the most important thing And everything else in life falls under his control, his lordship, his sovereignty, his control. Right? We, he's not just our bellboy to come and fetch us things when we need it. He is God. He is Lord. He is creator. And he demands something from us. Christianity is, is absolutely, it's, it's by faith. It is, it is coming to him. And he, the offer of life, Jesus says, I will make your burden light. You will find rest in me. But that doesn't mean that we just sit around and do nothing. It doesn't mean that we can just kind of believe whatever we want to believe and kind of do whatever we want to do. And then as long as I haven't hurt anybody or as long as I've been mostly a good, decent person, then God will accept me into His kingdom. What I find interesting this last week in my studies for uh, seminary, as I as I look back over the times when Jesus prayed, He prays for believers, and quite often He says, "I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for believers that they would be faithful." Right. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers. Like the field is ready. God is working, and he is active in the world, and he is ready to transform lives. But it's, it's not until we, his people, his body, when we wake up and we recognize the calling that we have to faithfully represent him in this world, John 17, he is praying. He's like, I don't pray that, I, that God, that you would take, him, take my followers out of the world, but I pray that they would be faithful. Jesus prays for you and for me that we would be faithful and that we would not corrupt ourselves with the ways and the thinking and the ideologies of this world, but that we would be faithful to his teaching and to following him and everything that he set out to do. So here we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to put the, uh, the verses up on the screen for us. Um, let's stand as we read these verses together. It's going to be two, uh, two slides here. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You can be be seated. You know, we see here in this last verse in verse 23 if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard this is the thrust this is what paul is getting to and we're gonna we're gonna go back and and over the next several minutes we're gonna unpack um, some of these ideas here in the in uh in this passage but the idea that the reason is that you would not shift from the hope ...that you have, that you would not become unstable, but that you would be completely stable in what you believe and how you live. So, the first thing that we're going to look at, Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God. So, first off, in this section, in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see that Christ is Lord over creation... He is the image of the invisible God. You know, besides the obvious meaning of likeness, image implies representation. It implies a manifestation. Like when you look at a coin, you know, you've got, a, you've got the embossed image of on the penny. You've got Lincoln, right? You, there's that image that has just been embossed on there. And when you look at it, you know that you are looking at Lincoln. It's obviously not Lincoln, but you understand. It's that idea that he is so he is the representation. When you see Christ, Hebrews 1 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John fourteen nine, Jesus said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So anyone who saw Christ, the visible Manifestation of the invisible God can say that they have seen God. The second thing that we see in this passage is that He is the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean that He was created first. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that when God set out to create, that God created Jesus and then created through Jesus everything else. That's how they interpret this passage, this, this, the, this concept. This concept of being the firstborn, though, I mean, in John 1.1, 1, 1, we have the understanding, we have the words that say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ preceded creation. He was not created and then everything created from Him. He existed before time with God the Father. and But then He was the instrument that God the Father used to create the Word. He spoke and creation came into being. And He is the sovereign. He is in control over all creation. So the concept here of the firstborn is that the firstborn child not only had priority of birth, but also the dignity and superiority that went with it. So when Jesus declared himself in Revelation 1.17 to be the first, he uses a word that means absolutely first. First in priority first in superiority in rank and so not only is he first in time because he existed before time he pre- he preceded creation but he is also the sovereign over creation he is first in rank he is the supreme in Psalm 89:27 we see that these words that initially were spoken of king david but they def- it is definitely a messianic uh prophecy regarding Jesus himself and it says i will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth and so jesus is supreme this idea of firstborn it's not first created but it's 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 that that dignity and respect that was due to that one who was put who is titled as being firstborn? Okay, so um, so it, it implies not only um, priority in uh, in it, it, it did, I think I've already said it. I don't want to say it anymore. I'm on. He is. He preceded creation. He is sovereign over creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. So everything points to him. It is for him, right? He is. He is supreme. The next thing that we'll see in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So what we see in this passage Paul lists it out for us. He says he's created everything, everything in heaven and on earth, everything that is visible and Everything that is invisible. This is something I think oftentimes we have a hard time wrapping our minds around because we live by what we can see, touch, feel, smell. But Paul is pointing out to us that, yes, Christ is supreme. He is sovereign over everything that you can see, but he's also making us mindful that he is, he is sovereign over everything that is unseen. There is a battle that is taking place in this world for the souls of men and women and we don't remember that sometimes because we're so dominated by everything that we can see and touch and feel that impacts us in very real ways the flesh, but there is also a spiritual battle that is taking place over our souls, over our attention over our minds and we have to be vigilant, we have to be we have to diligently protect ourselves against those things which are unseen. But th- these verses remind us that he, he has created everything everything in heaven and earth, things that are visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All of these things have been created by God. So the dual application here is that, you know, in, in what we can see, as I've already said, earthly rulers have been set up by God. They are His plan. They are His outworking. That means no matter who is in control, God is in control. No matter who gets elected into office, whether it's your guy or not, it is God who is in control. And in that, you can take hope. So no matter how badly things go, in your opinion, you can know that God is in control. And that no matter what happens, even if even if the whole world catches on fire because of how bad the choice was, you are secure in God. I was reminded recently as the elders went to a, uh, a, a conference over at First Baptist of Bellevue that uh, a prime example of what it looks like to live in a world that is in complete uh, opposition to everything that you believe is Daniel. If you're familiar with the story of Daniel, Daniel is is a a boy who is taken out of his homeland and he is transferred into this Babylonian society that worships Baals, false gods, worships the stars and angels, all of these things. Daniel and his friends that we are often familiar with, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, these guys, they are taken. And, and essentially, at first, you know, when, when they are taken, they have names that honor God. But they are then given names that now say, I serve Beelzebub or Baal. Right? So, and yet, they're not fighting for their rights, but they remain faithful. And the story of Daniel, as it unfolds, is a story of faithfulness, of how to thrive in a culture that is completely opposite to what you believe. And not just opposite in a passive way, but actively oppressive and, and offensive even to everything that you believe. And yet they thrive, and God blesses them, and we have their testimony today. I would encourage you at some point to go back and read that story because it is such a a fascinating study of how to live faithfully in this world even when everything is completely opposed to everything that that you hold dear. So the things that we see, the earthly rulers, the authorities, all of these things are set up by God. But also the things that are unseen. Again, it's that reminder. We have to remind ourselves that there is a battle that has taken place. There are spiritual forces that are at work around us seeking to discourage and destroy God's testimony. This is not a, a devil under every rock or behind every door, but this is an understanding that That there is spiritual warfare and it is every bit as real as the warfare that we see taking place on the physical plane. But all of these things are under God's sovereign control. Why the emphasis on angels, you know, and, and this unseen realm? It's because there were false teachers that were coming into the churches in Colossae and they were, they were teaching astrology and, and all of these things that were, that were teaching that angels needed to be worshipped, that, that, that angels had control over heavenly things, but that, and that these things, these teachings needed to be met head on. That angels are created beings, they they have power but the only power that they have is that which god has given them another look back at the old testament story of job i think is a is a classic uh, example uh, uh, and a story of this where we get a picture of what takes place in the in the heavenly realms right we've got satan there's the, the, in in the story of job Uh, If you're familiar with the story, there's this this man who is living faithfully, and in in, in an afternoon, he loses literally everything in his life. And how that came about is that Satan, who is depicted as walking about the earth, goes and presents himself to God, and basically, it becomes a bet. I bet that my servant Job will will remain faithful no matter what happens. And Satan's like, you're on. And God says, okay, but you can't do this, right? You can only go this far. And this happens a couple of times. Even the power that Satan has, and he does have power. Even the power that he but the power that he has is only what God has allowed him to have. He is not all-powerful. Christ is all-powerful. Christ is sovereign. Paul doesn't deny the existence of these unseen things, but he just says they need to be thought about in their proper way. Christ is creator. Christ is sovereign. The next part that we see, verse 17, first part of 17, he is before all things. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word in the beginning uh, and, and the word was with God and the word was God. John eight fifty seven fifty eight. 58, the Jews speaking to Jesus said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So this, again, just to summarize it, this, this Firstborn, He is before all things. We're going to see it again. The firstborn from the dead. This firstborn implies Christ's pr- priority to all of creation, both in time and before all things in rank. He is sovereign, He is supreme. There is nothing else that is higher than Him. Paul is saying all of these things in multiple ways to try to convey, to try to solidify this idea. There is nothing, nothing that is greater than than Jesus Christ. And then last, in this, in this section, in, in him, all things hold together. Again, going back to that verse in Hebrews 1, 3, we looked at the first part earlier, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only has he created everything, but he holds everything together. What a powerful, powerful, humbling thought. If God isn't thinking about you, you don't exist. You don't hold together. As I was uh, studying this last week, I came across uh, an idea in, in science called laminin how many of you have you ever heard of laminin okay laminin laminin is a is a laminins are a family of proteins that are an integral part of the structure of cells right and so they are they they are the scaffolding of basement membranes in almost every animal tissue And laminins are literally the binding agent. They are literally what holds everything together. It holds cells together with one another. So they are what holds your physical body together. Otherwise, you would just be a bunch of random cells. But these laminins hold everything together. And I put this picture up on the screen for you of a laminin, and I just find it fascinating that the structure of the laminin is the cross, essentially. It's either a cross or it's one of those, like, like the, uh, the car dealership guys that are, you know, kind of going up and down, right? It's, it's one of the two. So it's, it's, it's either a crazy, you know, gimmicky attention-getter or... It's the shape of, essentially, the, the shape of the cross. And I just think that this, it's so powerful to think that when you get down, even on the molecular level of everything, it points to the cross of Jesus Christ. He holds everything together. What a powerful picture. Powerful. So we move on to the next section of our passage. Colossians 1, verses 18 through 20. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. So if we have Paul, he's, he's, bringing, he's narrowing the focus. He has started off as a master debater with the biggest. He is Lord of creation. He is Lord of everything that you can see, everything that you can't see, Christ is Lord of all of that. This next section, he's narrowing the focus. He's saying, he is the head of the body, the church. So it's everything, everything. And let's narrow it down. Let's bring it in a little bit. He is the head of the body, the church. So what is the church? The the word that is used here, the Greek word is ekklesia. I don't have any idea if I'm saying that right. It's, I'll say it, confidently, Ekklesia. So therefore, it's correct. But, um, but the the Greek word ecclesia simply means assembly, right? So it's it's a gathering of people. But this ecclesia is unique in that they are the assembly of believers in Jesus Christ. Now there was a. There was an ecclesia that existed before what we understand to be the church, and that was the Jewish people. And there were all of these people that gathered together. They were an ecclesia. They were God's called-out people. But there's a mystery that was revealed in Christ that was not seen before, and that was that people like you and I, people who were not born Jewish, now have an opportunity To have a relationship with God by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the church is the assembly of all believers in Jesus Christ, be it Jewish or Gentile, anyone who puts their faith in Christ. They have been regenerated by Christ. They have been made alive. They are indwelt by Christ. They have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They are empowered by Christ. And they are motivated by Christ. I would venture to say that probably 90% of our lives are spent in the full acknowledgement of the first two. But we don't move on to points three and four. That we are now empowered by Christ and motivated to live our lives for him. Going back to our passage. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. There's that concept again. Firstborn from the dead. So he is the first in resurrection. He is supreme. He was not the first to be resurrected. We have the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John. Lazarus was raised from the dead. But Lazarus, though he was raised from the dead, for surely he stinketh, right? That's, that's, you know, Mary's like, please don't open the tomb. It's going to really, really stink. No. Jesus calls Lazarus forth, and he lives again. But Lazarus also died again. Christ, when He was raised, He is the firstborn. Again, it's that that idea of priority over and prominence over all of all of the other ideas that you had about this. Christ is supreme. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, He might be in your top five. That He might may, maybe make it make your bucket list. No. That He is preeminent. That He is superior. Christ, when He was raised from the dead, He was raised incorruptible. To never die again. He has an eternal body. You could look at the, the, the teaching that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that just further expounds upon this idea. We don't have the time to go into it today, but he was raised incorruptible and eternal, and we get to follow in his likeness. It hasn't happened yet. We're not there yet. We're still here. But we have confidence in the future that we have because of what Christ accomplished and how through his resurrection, he calls us to follow after him. Christ has proved his, proven his power over death for himself and then offers it to us. So, moving on in our passage, we see that here again, Paul brings it in. He is Lord over creation. He is the head over the body, the church. and He is Lord over you. He is Lord over me. Verses 21 through 23, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, under which I, Paul, became a minister. He's bringing the focus in, Paul, he leaves us with no other option but to decide. What does this mean for me? See, it would be one thing if it's like, oh yeah, he's Lord over creation. He's Lord over all of those things. Oh yeah, he's Lord over the church. Oh, but wait a minute. There's a personal application. This comes down to me. I have to decide. Is Christ... Lord of my life? Do you come to Jesus to say, what do you require of me today? What do you want from me? And then to listen, I want you to. See, Jesus, even when he taught he had a lot of very pointed, and if we're going to be honest, a little bit frightening things to say. He, was, he didn't care about having a large group. He wanted faithful people to follow him. Matthew six twenty-four: no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the word that that is translated in this verse as money is mammon. And the concept behind that word mammon is not, it can be translated as money, it's not incorrect to say that it is money, but it it is more along the lines of material things, possessions. You cannot serve God and be chasing after all of the material possessions that this world offers. These are the words of Jesus to all who would follow after him. And he doesn't even leave it at that. In Luke chapter 14, he says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So, therefore, any, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Like I said, Jesus Jesus didn't care about having a large group. (laughs) There were many who, after hearing his words, left. He even turned to his disciples and says, Are are you going to leave too? He understands. It's a hard teaching. It's a hard thing. Now, if we're going to take this literally... If we're going if, if if to understand that Jesus is actually telling you, you have to hate your family. Now that is against everything that God had revealed in his law. And yet Jesus came to fulfill the law. So what does he mean? If, if Christ is the best representation of what it looks like to live according to God's Torah, his teachings, and he's telling people that you have to hate your family, in order to be his disciple, what in the world could he possibly be meaning to say? It's all about priorities. He is making an extreme point to get to his point. He's trying to shock you to listen. Wait a minute, do I have to hate my family? No, no, you don't have to hate your family, but you have to love God more than you love your family. It's about a shifting in your priorities in life. It's a comparison. If you're saying, well, no, my family is just more important to me than you are, God, then it's been revealed you're not really his disciple. This is what Jesus is saying. It's your loyalty to Jesus has to trump anything else. That you will follow Him. That you will even deny your own life to follow Him. And it may look, it may look like you hate your family. But he's not telling you to actually hate your family. We are called to love at the basis of everything that that God is it is motivated by love not hate again don't misunderstand the point that Jesus is making here it's about priorities do you love Jesus more than anything else does he have your heart's attention this is what he's getting at who is Lord of your life? It's not enough just to acknowledge that God exists. As Paul points out through that, throughout this passage, as I said, he, he narrows it down to laser-like focus. He is Lord over all of creation. He is Lord of all His body, the church, those who gather in his name. He is Lord over you. Where are your priorities? This world has a lot to offer, a lot to distract. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what is really important. God, all the meanwhile, is saying, pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. Love me with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Love me. I will take care of all of the things that you need. I will provide for your every need. I am Lord. I am sovereign. I need your heart. This is God's heart. For you, that we would love you. That we would not be distracted by all of the other things, that we would love him first and foremost, because he is preeminent, he is Lord of all. Let's close the prayer. Father God, we thank you.